Back to Swift Unwrapped, a podcast about the Swift programming language and other open source projects at Swift.org. I'm Jesse Squires. And I'm JP Smart. Today we want to continue along our topic of ABI stability, uh, tackling the three last uh, items that we've yet to discuss that pertain to stabilizing the ABI. And those three things are the calling convention, the runtime, and uh, standard library API. Yeah, so uh, let's start with uh, calling conventions. So this is uh, basically specifying how uh, functions are called and um, the operations around that, such as like how registers are used, what goes where, which registers are preserved, um, how the call stack is set up, stack alignment. How errors are propagated. How errors are propagated. All of these different things. In this ABI stability doc, they refer to the standard calling convention, uh, which is referring to just the C calling convention for a given platform. And so it sounds like in some places Swift uses the standard calling convention, some places uh, it deviates from that. One important thing to note is that this only pertains to public interfaces. Um, internally to modules, the Swift compiler is free to uh, use any convention that it wants. Which is where access control is amazing. It really shines where you can specify anything um, that is internal or lower. Um, the compiler can do all sorts of stuff that doesn't really need to be compatible with uh, previous versions of Swift if it wants to, if it needs to, if there's a good reason to change how things work to optimize them or um, you know, add, add some extra functionality. Or in other words, the best APIs are the non-public APIs. Best source is closed source. Exactly. Yeah, I think it's been proven. Um, <laughs> yeah, so this is uh, fairly complex, like Jesse mentioned what registers are involved. I don't know if you want to dive more into um, specifically register usage. Yeah, I think it's kind of interesting. Some terminology up front have Kali saved registers, which are preserved. So um, if a called function, the function being called, uh, wishes to change values in a stored register, um, if it's Kali saved, it needs to restore those values before it returns uh, to the caller. And then there are scratch registers, uh, which are also called like Kali clobbered, um, in which case that function does not need to preserve those values during the duration of a function call. Yeah, what's not clear to me is if any of this is actually leaked or displayed or affects um, any kind of user side uh, decisions to use some code over another. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so the definitions here are, are fairly implementation specific, uh, but it doesn't go into when um, a specific register or approach, whether it's Kali saved or scratch, would be used over another. And if um, 
end users need to keep this in mind when they're developing Swift. Mm -hmm. um, so well, I, I really don't know what the impact is. Yeah, my guess is likely not. Uh, but uh... well, there seems to be um, a difference here in uh, in in the cost, right? Where Kali Saved Register does seem to have additional costs on the on the mm. called function. Well, sure, yeah, because it has to restore those previous values. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. So I, I, I've got to say, I'm kind of out of my depth on this, even more yeah. so than usual for the rest of the ABI stuff. Yeah. Uh, another special register is the call context, and so this depends on the kind of function that's called. Uh, so, for example, uh, this register for uh, instance methods on a class. Uh, contains the pointer to self, uh, which makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, on class methods, it's a pointer to the type uh, metadata. And for mutating value types, uh, it's a pointer to the value. So that the value is passed indirectly in that case, which makes sense because if you have like a struct with a mutating method, you're like implicitly mutating uh, that instance in place. Uh, so the context is that value itself. Yeah. For non-mutating methods on value types, says here that self could fit in a register, uh, one or more registers. Otherwise, it's passed indirectly, like the mutating case, I guess. Mm, right, and and this is where um, this won't be a, a pointer to the value type or to the underlying storage of the value type. It'll be the the raw bits. Right, that represent the value. So this right. is for, um, tr I guess, trivial types. Yes. So like an int could fit, uh, sure, in a register or or um, a point of double double members. Yep. Right. Any trivial type mm -hmm. um, that fits in one or more registers. Yeah. Which I guess is going to be platform specific, whether uh, or not it fits in registers. Right, sounds like it, yeah. And then another situation here is uh, what they call thick closures, which I've never heard before. Um, and so that's closures that require context, which I assume is, that's a closure that captures some external state that needs to stick yeah. around. So thick closure as opposed to just a function pointer. Mm -hmm. Right. That doesn't need to preserve any context whatsoever, right? You can right. literally just pass the pointer. Right. And so in this case, that call context register will contain the closure context, which it doesn't say a pointer to this. Uh, I would assume it's a pointer to this, but... Yeah, I am it, it. I would venture to say that it's similar to the, the previous case of if the context can fit in one or more registers, and I'll try to do that. Otherwise, uh, it'll probably sure. construct some sort of payload stored... Mm -hmm. uh, somewhere on on the heap and pass a pointer to that right um assuming one case that's not called out here are free functions which is it's, again similar to um non-thick closures just a, a pointer to the function ah makes sense right so that's i i guess it's so simple uh as a case that it's not even called out here mm-hmm it's like, oh, that's so obvious. We don't, <laughs> we don't need to spell that out here. Yeah, as you can clearly see. Right. Uh, yeah, that's the case. 
watch us be completely wrong on that and uh, <laughs> you know someone uh rage modify this document <laughs> <laughs> yeah. people are wrong on the internet i yeah. must clarify this uh, which is why we have the podcast yeah so then there are error registers or an error register on some platforms. I guess this is not always the case uh, on every platform, but I guess this is how Swift uh, error propagation is handled. So if you have a throwing function, mm-hmm. if it throws an error, that gets put into this register. So when you return, you can check to see if there's an error there, and if so, follow the correct uh, branch of the code path um, to execute the error handling code as opposed to uh, continuing. Yeah. Um, And that seems pretty straightforward. (laughs) But yeah, in this simple explanation. Mm -hmm. I I think as far as uh, this pertains to end users of Swift, I think there's relatively little... Uh, that can impact kind of your decisions and and how your life is affected by these calling convention decisions, or rather specifically the register use decisions for ABI stability. Mm -hmm. Um, But again, common theme, um, just know that this does have to be stabilized uh, for ABI to be considered stable. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it's yet another um, convention that needs to to be ironed out and um, fully committed to um, by the Swift language. Mm-hmm. There's other aspects to the calling convention that need to be stabilized. One is how functions are lowered. Um, the process of lowering a function is to basically reduce it to its lowest level representation. So this is especially uh, useful uh, or relevant to um, generic functions and higher order functions that need to be re-abstracted, which we discussed before um, as part of the ABI big picture. And so the the process by which higher order functions are lowered needs to be stable uh, so that across different compilation modules, functions are lowered in the same way. And so functions are represented in the same way. I guess this is very similar to, or this is very tied to uh, name mangling and the name mangling scheme. Like Mm -hmm. how is a generic function represented, which is a huge part of why the generic signature builder is critical to ABI stability. Mm -hmm. Kind of defining what a generic method resolves to in in a specialized or um, thunk case. Right. And so what exactly happens in this process of lowering like what what does that mean like more concretely well it's it's a re-abstraction so for example um we we discussed re-abstraction before and and i feel like we had read up a little bit more on it last time so maybe refer to that uh as a listener but i'll I'll try and um, restate what that means here it's when you have a either a specialized version of a generic method mm-hmm. or a non-specialized as in unknown at compile time what types you're going to be specializing the generic method with um, it's the process to basically translate the more abstract representation of the function into a more concrete one mm-hmm. so um, for example if you have 
Uh, here, the example used is an apply function that uh, has a generic parameter t. Um, well, when you call that and say at, at compile time, you know that you're calling apply with an integer, then it can re-abstract, i.e. lower the function to um, a specific implementation that only deals with, what, what did I say, bool? Int. Oh, that yeah. only deals with ints, right? Right. So that it knows exactly the uh, layout size mm. of the type that you're passing in, I and see. it can actually generate machine code for that rather than kind of a higher order function that needs to look things up at runtime, like the payload, the size of the payload and things like that. Right, right. Looking up that that type information dynamically. Yes. Yeah. Now you can kind of start to see how all these things are intertwined. Yes. Uh, which is stated at the start of this doc that we are conceptually breaking them apart, although they are quite... Um, uh, codependent and kind of influence each other. Yeah. Yeah. Um, should we move on to uh, just runtime considerations in general? Uh, sure. Yeah. Um, Swift is a very compile time centric language, but there's still a lot that needs to happen at runtime. And uh, the API that that runtime provides needs to be stable. But the th- the things that it returns, as long as it's in a stable format, can change over time. And so this is an area where um, the the runtime can be leveraged for extensions to the language in ways that statically determine things like some aspects of the calling convention, like uh, type metadata layout, um, can't necessarily be known at compile time. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a very useful extension point. Um, and not only that, but there are things that require the runtime even today with no ABI stability in Swift, uh, such as you know doing runtime checks for um, you know getting the type of an instance of an object, right? Type of or right or dynamic casting mm-hmm, as casting, casting stuff. Yep. yep. So those all use the Swift runtime, and so the Swift runtime needs to maintain a stable API. Mm-hmm. Um, its implementation, its implementation can change mm-hmm. as long as kind of from a consumer it looks the same, right? Uh, this also includes like reflection APIs, which I think is what people most associate with uh, this topic. Yeah, and there's a family of changes to the Swift language that are ABI additive. Um, right. That can be done even after the ABI has stabilized and. A lot of that can come through runtime extensions, mm-hmm. such as you know a reflection API, right. which is a runtime API that won't affect any existing code because it can't call into something that doesn't exist yet. Right. So um, the runtime provides a lot of extension points to the language. Mm-hmm. I think one thing to bring up here is, you know, in the earlier days of Swift, there was lots of discussion or lots of focus on Swift being very static uh, because we often think of Objective-C dynamism when we think about these dynamic features, when in fact Swift generics are like a very highly dynamic uh, feature of Swift um, that are often resolved at runtime in much the same way that you you can do all of these uh, 
runtime uh, w- with all these runtime features in Objective C, um, inspecting types and things. Um, I mean, it's it's very different, but we have like the same ideas here of like this dynamism that's that's happening uh, at runtime. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'd I'd also say that a lot of times when the discussion about um, how Swift should or shouldn't be more dynamic. Mm-hmm. Most of the time, it's comparing um, capabilities of different languages that happen to leverage dy- dynamic features of the language right. that um, people associate in their heads as going together, but it's not the only way to do things, right? So, for example, um, it's possible to implement things like reflection and um uh, property behaviors and uh, things like um, code generation at compile time using the right constructs uh, and and often safer constructs than doing runtime manipulation, right. uh, like is often the case in Objective C. So, um, you know, that's one thing to keep in mind. Another is that uh, dynamically resolving, you know, the um, invocation for, say, a property getter on an instance of a type um, that may or may not be dynamic, but that's largely irrelevant to you as a Swift user. Mm-hmm. What's more relevant is the behavior um, and being able to specify that uh, something should be known at compile time to like always require this implementation or might require a runtime check. Um, and Swift generally provides, at that level of dynamism, generally provides uh, lots of options for, mm-hmm. for users to specify. But um, you do need to be cognizant of um, sometimes some implementation details in order to really leverage it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so the the runtime section of the ABI stability manifesto is actually fairly short. Um, and I guess that's really a reflection of um, there's only a fairly narrow aspect of the runtime that needs to be stable, and that's API. Um, What it does under the hood, the way it's implemented, um, even kind of what it returns to some extent can be more flexible. It's just that older versions of Swift will um, just use a subset of the runtime API that it needs. Mm -hmm. So the final aspect of ABI stability here is the standard library uh, itself. Um, so any standard library API that sh- has, that will ship post-ABI stability um, must be supported into uh, future versions to ensure uh, binary compatibility. So the standard library um, can utilize new or existing uh, resilience annotations and inlineable code. Uh, But inlineable code uh, is an interesting case, right? Because anything in the standard library that is marked uh, as inlineable, um, which I guess that's the always inline uh, annotation or something. I think those are different things. Are the Okay. I think we can talk about inline code from the standard library in general. Sure. So, so inlined uh, in general, that means this code is uh, bundled with client code, um, and thus, if you compile your app uh, with a certain version of Swift and you call into inlineable functions in the standard lib, those 
uh, basically get plucked out and inserted into your binary. And so uh, the question is, what happens when uh, these things change in future versions? So let's say there's a bug in one of these um, inlineable functions that gets fixed in the next version of Swift. Your binary is still compatible, but those functions that were inlined, that code is in your binary with the bug in it. And so the only way for you to, at this point, uh, fix that bug is to recompile um, with this new version of Swift, which will, again, is still inlines, but you inline the new version yeah. uh, with the bug fix. Um, and there's uh, both pros and cons to this because yeah. it means that your app's old code running on newer platforms won't get the bug fixes from inline code on the newer platforms, on the newer Swift versions. But newer Swift versions can then be deployed, your your app can then recompile and then be deployed to platforms with an older Swift runtime and actually get those bug fixes from the newer Swift runtime. Right. Uh, not not runtime, but the newer Swift language. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it goes both ways, right? Mm-hmm. And if you frequently maintain your app and, and update it with newer versions of Swift with bug fixes, then uh, this can actually turn out to be a great thing for you. And not to mention that inlineability is usually very useful for performance where you can avoid a function call. Exactly. In, into an external module. Uh, you can, um, you're plucking, like Jesse said, it's a great way to describe it. You're plucking out the implementation out of the Swift language and baking it into your binary that mm-hmm. you're shipping, uh, which is why any subsequent changes to the Swift library on that platform, you won't pull in the benefits of of that inlined code. So it is a trade-off, but it's there are pros and cons to it that I, I really don't think um, uh, it balances out one way or another in the end. Yeah, you you can live with that existing potentially broken behavior. Um, it's nice that you don't have to recompile and everything still works. Um, works in quotes, you know, behavior is preserved and you don't have to worry about you don't you aren't absolutely required to recompile. But yeah, well, this this is fairly similar to how Swift works today, where um, you don't necessarily have all of Swift inlined in your app, but you do ship it in your app bundle as <laughs> a bunch right. of dynamic libraries. Right. So um, that means that on older OSs, newer OSs, since you're shipping the entirety of Swift with it, um, you can you know, leverage newer versions of Swift on older platforms, but you also have the disadvantage of you don't get advantages of the newer versions of Swift if you don't recompile your app. So you get the same thing today, except that this will um, be kind of an exception to um, having Swift shipped with the OS is that uh, there is this subset, which is everything that's inlined, that will be entirely independent with whatever the version of Swift on the OS is. Uh, Which maybe that could introduce some, uh, some interesting bugs Although I think if you're testing things, you're going to be recompiling anyway, so perhaps you won't see anything too bad. Yeah, that's the goal anyways, that (laughs) developers test their code before they push it out. Uh, Right. 
Yeah, but this this all goes back to uh, this whole theme of writing and debugging code in time and space, where yeah. it, it introduces a lot of uh, interesting edge cases and things to consider. And most of the uh, restrictions on standard library evolution um, also apply to library evolution in general, even for third-party libraries. It's just that because the standard library ships with all Swift code, uh, it is that much more important to get it right. Mm-hmm. Um, but all of all of its constraints on how it can evolve apply to, or, or at least a large majority of those changes also apply to third-party code that you want to um, be resilient across Swift versions. Some of those constraints, like inline ability is one of them. Um, there are also aspects like uh, non-resilient types can't change their layout. Um, protocols can't add new requirements because that would cause old code to cease working with newer versions of Swift. Mm-hmm. Um, so same kind of considerations that uh, you would have to make as a library author. Cool. I think that pretty much covers ABI stability. That concludes our little mini series here on ABI stability, what it means, uh, why it's important, um, and the implications for app developers, basically. You can find the show on Twitter at Swift underscore Unwrapped. You can find me at Jesse underscore Squires. You can find me on Twitter at SimJP. And please do leave a review on iTunes uh, if you've enjoyed listening to the show and catch us on Spectrum's chat um, to discuss anything related to the show and, and Swift in general. You can find that spectrum.chat slash specfm slash Swift dash unwrapped. See you next time. Thanks for listening. Thank you.